If you have your Bibles, you can turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6. If you don't have one, you can probably find one in front of you in the pew. We have some extras there in case you don't have one with you. 1 Timothy chapter 6, where we are going to be looking at the art of divine contentment. In John Bunyan's classic Pilgrim's Progress, there's a great little story in there. It involves a, um, a man named Demas. If you remember... Demas is the man that Paul mentioned in 2 Timothy 4.10 who departed from the faith because he had loved this present world more than the Lord. And in Bunyan's story, Christian and Hopeful, his friend, are going along the straight and narrow path to a celestial city and as they're going along their way, Demas comes out. And he says, men, come here. This hill, which was called Lucre, has a silver mine in it. And you can come here, dig for a while, and find all sorts of riches. And then you can be on your way again. And Hopeful says, yeah, let's go do it. And Christian says, no, no, no. I know this man. His father or grandfather was Gehazi. Now, if you don't know who Gehazi is, Gehazi was the servant of Elisha. And remember when Naaman the leper came and entreated Elisha to heal him, and Elisha did through the power of the Lord, um, Naaman wanted to pay Elisha for, for the miracle, and Elijah said, I can't give, take money from something that God did through me, so it'll be off with you. But Gehazi was greedy. And so he snuck off and caught up with Naaman and uh, said, you know, my master has reconsidered things. <laughs> Why don't you, you know, feel free to pay me? And so Naaman said, all right. And so he paid him for being healed of leprosy and instantly Gehazi became a leper himself. And so Christian says, I know who you are. You are the, the, the grandson of Gehazi. And we know the ruin that you have caused other men, and we are not turning off the straight and narrow way to pursue riches. But Demas doesn't give up then. He says, oh, wait a second now, wait. Why don't you come and just look at the silver mine? And Christian says, no, no, we aren't going to even look. He says, why don't you just stop right here for a little bit, and we can talk about it. And he tries everything he can to get them to turn off the straight and narrow way. And finally they say, no way, we're out of here. And they begin to leave. And just when they do, another man that they encountered along the way, Mr. Bayans, and his friends who are traveling with him meet Demas. And they are very quick to leave the path to go dig for treasure and Bunyan comments that they were never seen on the way to the celestial city again. That story illustrates so many good truths in the Bible and so many things that have snared so many Christians. And this morning we want to look at a subject, the subject of contentment. I actually stole the title of today's sermon, The Art of Divine Contentment, from the book that Thomas Watson wrote on the subject, explaining uh, Philippians chapter 4, verses 11 through 13. And 
And as I began to study this, I thought, this is, this is a hard, this is a hard truth to learn for people who live in America. It is a hard truth for us who live here where we have so much and such an abundance to think of contentment is just one of, it's almost otherworldly because it's so foreign to most of us. But that's what we are going to look at today. So if you have your Bibles, let's look at 1 Timothy 6, verses 6 through 10, and follow along as I read. Paul says, But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into this world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil, and some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many a pangs. Now, as we've already looked um, in the preceding context, we have discovered some different things about slaves and masters. But then in chapter 3, or chapter 6, verses 3 through 5, remember he talked about false teachers. And you remember what the motivation of false teachers was? Money. They were in They were in Christianity, they were doing the religious thing in order to get money for themselves, to get sexual pleasures, to get power, to get control. They were not in the ministry to give glory to God. They were not in the ministry because they loved the Lord. No, they gave a pretense for that and they pretended to be that way. But they thought, according to the end of verse 5, that godliness was a means of great gain. And so when Paul says that, he then switches in verse 6 to describe that godliness is, in fact, a means of great gain, and then goes on to explain that. And so from this text, we are going to learn three aspects of the art of divine contentment. First, that contentment will cause you to grow rich. Secondly, contentment will cause you to be satisfied with whatever God gives you. And third, contentment will not live in your heart if you love money. Now let's look at verse 6. Notice what Paul says. Godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. He has just said these false teachers suppose that godliness is a means of great gain. And it seems like he's saying, but it's not. And it's not if you think of gain as gaining worldly possessions. But then when he says, but, at the end of verse 6, he's making a contrast when he says godliness is a means of great gain. False teachers use religion to promote themselves and get what they want. But true Christians strive for godliness to give God what he wants. And Paul doesn't just say, well, I want you to know godliness is not a means of gain. He says even that it is great gain, and he uses mega is the word. It is mega gain, huge gain. The word godliness is a key word in Timothy. It appears 15 times in the New Testament, but eight times in this book. Over half the occurrences in all the New Testament appear in 1 Timothy. It is a key 
word in the book. Godliness, again, means godly piety. It can mean general reference to religion, but godly piety, walking in the Spirit, doing the will of God, striving to do what God wants you to do in the power of the Holy Spirit. And he says, this is the means of great gain. Now, the word contentment here. It was used by the Greek Stoics in extra-biblical writing to describe people who are very self-sufficient, self-satisfied, satisfied in one's own self and one's own possession and one's own things um, so that they had no care about things external to them because everything was just fine. With They had just mastered their own greed and lust and supposedly were able to just be an island in and of themselves. But in a biblical context, contentment is always rooted in trusting in Christ. To have Christ be your sufficiency. So that no matter what happens to you, no matter what comes upon you in your life, your thoughts immediately go to Jesus Christ. You tell yourselves about things about Christ you know are true, and this causes you to have peace rather than grumble and fret and worry and be anxious. Jeremiah Burroughs wrote a classic work called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. It's one of those books that you can read if you're really tough. Because I'm telling you, he takes you to the woodshed. And Burroughs defined contentment as... That which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. In other words, he said contentment is to trust God that no matter what circumstances you are in, you know that God has brought that to you. Contentment does not mean, though, that you are unmotivated and slothful and sluggardly. A lot of times we think, you know, you know, ambition here, contentment here. But when you look in the Bible, you find Paul pressing on towards the mark, striving to attain things that are good. He was very ambitious. Jesus just ministered to the point of just, just sheer exhaustion. Very ambitious, but content. Now, contentment is not just laying on the couch and being a couch potato and thinking to yourself, you know, someday, because God and his word cannot be thwarted, he will just levitate me off this couch. And he's going to make my mouth move and my hands move and he's going to, I'm going to be his instrument. But until then, I'm just totally content with just laying on the couch. That is not contentment. Contentment does not mean having no goals, having no desires, but contentment does mean being satisfied with God's provision right now in your life. Whatever your circumstance, whether you be blessed or whether you be undergoing great trial or sickness or whatever might happen to you, and God has interesting ways of teaching us contentment, doesn't he? And one of the dangerous things to do is to pray, Lord, help me be content. That is a very scary prayer. That's like, make me humble. Okay. This last week, I 
I um, took some time off, and we had some people visiting from out of town, and, and so they were all going to go to the beach, and, and the beach is one of my least favorite places. And so I said, well, go ahead and go to the beach. I'll pour some concrete. <laughs> and so I would rather pour concrete than go to the beach. And so I did. I poured a little, I disconnected our old water heater, which was really old and really small, and I disconnected it, and I got it out of the way and I poured a nice concrete slab for it and then I thought okay and I went down and I got a, a water heater and it was warm outside on the south side of the house and so I wrestled this big water heater up to the side of the house and and cut open the box and it had been dropped by a forklift from a very high height and uh, the legs were bent underneath it was the, the side was crushed so I wrestled it back down got out of my truck went back and got another one and I'm thinking, and this is interesting, on the week I'm preaching on contentment. <laughs> and so I bring that thing up and I, I wrestle it up and I get it up next to the house. And luckily it was only 100 degrees on the south side of the house. And, um, and I cut it open and I put it in place and I get it all plumbed up and I fill it up with water. And I'm just getting ready to hook up the last line because all the water is out of it. And all of a sudden the tank starts leaking. Oh, and then I'm thinking to myself, this is very interesting. On the week, I'm preaching on contentment. So I then turned off the water and disconnected the gas lines and the water lines and, and, and opened that little wimpy spigot they have on there, and I watched that thing drain as I stood there in the hot sun. And it took forever to drain 50 gallons out of the hot water heater. So finally it did. I put it in my truck. I took it back down there, and I got another one. I thought, Phew, good thing. Hooked that one all up, filled it all up, and that one had a bad igniter. <laughs> and I had witnesses standing around. There's people visiting me who were watching me, so I had to try and respond right. <laughs> and God was there. But he knows how wicked I am. So I was thinking to myself, I do not feel very happy right now. So I disconnected it, and this time I put the compressor on the one side and blew out the water and got it in my truck, took it back, got my money back, went to a different place and got a different brand, put it in, and four water heaters later, I got that baby in. <laughs> now, what was interesting about that is the... <laughs> is is the whole time I'm thinking I'm preaching on contentment this week. <laughs> and this is what I want you to know. Is that, you know, sometimes God, when he's trying to help you grow, he gives you little things because he knows that you are able to handle a certain amount. And, and maybe when you're a young Christian, he gives you little things. And to you, they're hard, but you eventually get over them. And you would think that he goes, oh, you're content with that little thing. It's over. Now you're past and, you know, no more. No, he keeps giving you bigger things until pretty soon you're up to four water heaters in a day. <laughs> and in all of those circumstances, you just need to realize God is the one who is in control. I mean, God is the one who made sure that happened to me. The scriptures say that every single thing that comes about comes from the hand of God, that nothing, whether good or ill, uh, escapes the hand of God. God knows that it's going to happen before it happens. He has the power to change it before it happens. And if he doesn't change it and he lets it happen, it's God's will. 
And it's God's will for us to go through it and to trust His grace in the whole process. And a lot of times it's just not fun. It's not fun when Jesus was in the garden praying, knowing what was going to come upon him and to have his disciples keep falling asleep. But it was necessary. You know, some of us have children and a lot of times our children just think we we were born to make rules. And they don't understand why we make all those rules. Why do I have to take my medicine? It tastes so icky because I'm the parent and you need it and you're going to take it. And, you know, they don't like being disciplined, but you know it build, builds the, the peaceful fruit of righteousness in them. And in the same way, God will bring things your way. He'll bring sickness and he'll bring trial and death and losing your job and conflicts with people and relationship difficulties. And all of these things come upon you. Why? From the hand of God. Why? Because he wants you to be content in him and him alone. He wants you to learn the art of divine contentment. You know, when John the Baptist was was baptizing people in the Jordan River, you remember the people came to him, some soldiers came to him, and uh, they were all coming to be baptized, repenting of their sins to be baptized, and and some soldiers, after they were being baptized, they questioned him. And they, they, they said, you know, what do we need to do in order to show true repentance? And this is what John said to them. Do not take money from anyone by force or accuse anyone falsely and be content with your wages. That is interesting. John says, don't steal from people. Don't bear a false witness and be content with your wages. Thomas Watson in his work, The Godly Man's Picture, said, When Christians complain at their condition, they forget that they are servants and must live on the allowance of their heavenly master. You who have the least bit from God will die in his debt, end quote. Thomas Weiss, in his word studies of the New Testament, said contentment enables us to maintain a spiritual equilibrium in the midst of both favorable circumstances and those which are adverse. That's what contentment is. Contentment isn't lack of ambition. Contentment isn't lack of motivation. Contentment isn't, doesn't even rule out wanting a better job with better pay. But contentment is the attitude that right now God has given me what I have, and I am going to be thankful and trust in his provision now, even though there may be something better on the horizon. And so often we can begin to complain and we begin to grumble. But the first point we want to learn here is that godliness is a means of great gain, but only... When it's accompanied by contentment. And if contentment is not there, it's not godliness. It's not godliness. You have to have contentment. That is why Paul said what he did. The false teachers say they supposed that godliness was a means of great gain, thinking of material things and physical things. But Paul said, actually, godliness is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment, which means not the pursuit of those things. It's okay if you get them, but 
It is to be satisfied in God and Christ and their provision for you. Paul then moves from reminding us that godliness is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment to helping us understand and gain some godly perspectives to help us with circumstances. Look at verse 7. The second point is contentment will cause you to be totally satisfied with God's provision. Look at verse 7. The text says, For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. Verse 7 begins with the word for. And this word tells us that Paul is now giving us the reason or the rationale behind why godliness is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. And he says, we've brought nothing into this world. What is he talking about? Birth. You know, when you're born, you don't come out of the womb with a suitcase and a MasterCard and a car and a luggage full of clothes. You don't have anything when you come into the world. Nothing. No material possessions at all. And Paul goes on to remind us, so we cannot take anything out of it either. What is he talking about there? Death. He's talking about death. When you die and you go to heaven, you know, we know the famous quote by, who is it? Uh, Chuck Swindoll. There it is. I was thinking of Charles Stanley. I thought, no, it starts with a chub, but not that. Yeah, you've never seen a hearse pulling a U-Haul trailer. You just don't see it. When you die... Do you think that you will be able to take your clothes with you and your home and your furniture and your car and your cat or anything else? No. They're all staying behind. You know, when John D. Rockefeller died, you know, one of the richest men who ever lived. When he died, I love what his aide said. Somebody asked him a question and said, you know, how much did he leave behind? And his aide said, everything. Everything. Everybody leaves behind everything. No one takes anything with them. Paul's whole point is, listen, if you enter into life with nothing and you exit life with nothing, then you don't need it. That's all. That's about as clear as you can get. And so often, though, don't we hoard things? I mean, we compare ourselves with people, with movie stars, and, oh, man, I wish I could be like rich, famous so-and-so. Probably not. You know, there's so many, in my life growing up, there were so many people that, you know, were rock stars or whatever, and they, you know, made one album and made a million dollars, and you never heard from them again. You really want to be like that? You know, go drug yourself into oblivion? Most, most famous people die miserable. Their lifestyles are very wretched and wicked. They just do everything they can to just indulge themselves with anything they can purchase with their massive amounts of money which do, do not satisfy you. They, when you try and find satisfaction in the things of the world, the only thing it does is create more desire for the things of the world which creates more desire and you're never satisfied. You just indulge yourself to death and die miserable. It's a shame that Christians would even long to be like that. 
Now, there is nothing wrong with having lots of things. Some of the godliest people in the Bible had lots of things. But they were content with those lots of things. And you're thinking, oh, I'd be content with lots of things too. <laughs> they were also content with little amounts. There were godly people like Paul who had nothing and he was content with that. So contentment is not how much you have or don't have. It's your attitude about what you have or don't have. What is your attitude? Are you fine if God gives you a steak? Great. If he gives you a bowl of rice, is that fine? If he lets you, you know, wear the latest fashions as long as they're moral, I mean, is that okay? And if you have to wear last year's or three years ago's fashion, is that okay? Are you content with that if that's what you have to have? I mean, think about it. Bill Gates may be a billionaire, but when he dies, he'll take as much with him as you're going to take with you. The same amount, zero, and nothing more. And this is why Paul says what he does in verse 8. Look there. He says, if we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. And the word translated food here means nourishment or sustenance. The word translated covering means um, to one of two things, either clothing or housing. Probably Paul has both in mind just enough to keep you from the elements. If you have basic food and basic covering, you shall be content with these and most people can't even fathom that in America. I mean, we complain if we don't have cable. You know, if we don't have DSL, we only have, you know, slow modem. Watson said the doctrine of contentment is very superlative. Until we have learned a contentment, we have not learned to be Christians. That is true. We need to learn to trust in God. When you look at your life, are you content with your food and covering? Are you content with what God has given you right now? It doesn't mean you can't have goals and desires, but are you content? Are you grumbling and complaining like the people of Exodus? Have you ever read the story of the Exodus? You know, whenever you read that story, it always ekes me when they complain. It seems like every chapter they're complaining. God does all these miracles, delivers them from Egypt, you know, divides the Red Sea. He gives a big street light and a pillar of fire for night and a big cloud to shade them during the day. They get hungry, so he feeds them manna that falls from heaven. They get thirsty, makes water come out of a rock. And then, then they start complaining. Oh, we never have, have water out of the rock like we did before. Well, I'll do it again. Well, we're so tired of this manna garbage, you know. I mean, come on, it's only food from heaven. But when you hear the first description, it's like, you know, it's like honey and, and you know, just wafers. It's just really sweet and yummy. But then after a while, man, we want some meat. So God sends them a bunch of dumb quail and they beat them down and eat them. And then they complain again. And while you're reading that, you're thinking, man, what is wrong with these people? They're thicker than lead. They are just dense. How come they can't get it down that God is going to take care of them? But think about this. This is even worse. We know all the miracles that they know and every other miracle in the Bible. We have the Holy Spirit in us. We have Jesus Christ. We understand the whole redemptive plan of God. We have all the word of God. And yet we are worse because we still complain. 
and practice discontentment. And we just need to repent of it. We need to get back to the attitude and get the world out of our head because the world is constantly telling telling us, you need this, you need that, buy this, buy that, get this, get that. And they're just a constant bombardment. You know how it is. And you're so bombarded with things like that that you just can hardly even get out. There's billboards and TV and radio. Our whole society is saturated and runs off of discontentment. But godliness is only a means of great gain for you if it is accompanied by contentment. If you can live your life saying... I don't care if I have trials. I don't care if I have sickness. I don't care if I have persecutions and distress. I know they all come from God's hand. Nothing ever happens to me that surprises God. He knows it all before it happens. He can change it before it happens. But if he doesn't and he brings it my way, it's what I need. And it's good for me, even though it may be painful. And so I need to be content with that. All of these things seem to be bad, you know, sickness and losing your job and all these things. But God brings them to us for a purpose because he wants us to practice contentment in him alone. You know, what do you think would happen if God made all of us real wealthy? Do you think we'd trust in him more? Hardly. And so he gives us trials of different sorts, like water heaters. And he makes us trust him more. The third point that we have here is contentment will not live in your heart if you love money. And this is very subtle. It is very subtle, but very pervasive. You know, so often you just... You, you get baited into things and pretty soon you're doing things and then all of a sudden you look back in your life and you realize you've made a major priority change away from God because of money. Look at verses 9 and 10. Verse 9 says, But those who want to get rich... Now just stop there for a second. It's important to note this word want in the phrase want to get rich it's a present participle which means those who are always wanting longing desiring to get rich and there's two different words that might be translated want or will or desire here there's one word that is kind of an emotional desire you know where you kind of have a feeling about something there's another kind of word bulamai which is a very cognitive and thought out process where you have weighed the balance Christ here and the things of the world here and you've thought okay let's see which one the world and all of a sudden money becomes your god money becomes your focus money becomes your driving passion it's the pursuit of riches those who are always trying to pursue riches is what he's talking about and then paul lays out and this is incredible in the next half of the verse in verse 10 eight consequences of those who make the pursuit of riches their god The first one is in verse 9. It says, those who want to get rich, first of all, fall into temptation. Now, if you have ever fallen down, you know that when you fall, it's always suddenly. You never say, oh, 
there's a fall. And then walk up there and trip over something and fall down. Because if you knew it was coming, you would avoid it. No falling always happens suddenly. And the point Paul is driving at here is that if you desire or always desiring to get rich, suddenly you will fall. And that fall will take you into temptation. Temptation is a word which means to draw you away from the straight and narrow to go to the hill of lucre to dig for silver. It is to deviate you from the path that God would have you on to a wrong path, a path going away from God. Secondly, not only do they fall into temptation, but those who lust and long to get rich also fall into a snare. Of course, snares, if you know anything about snares, most of us don't make snares unless you don't like the neighborhood cats, but (laughs) I haven't made any, but I know how to make snares. (laughs) You have a snare and... um, There's usually a bait stick and an animal will come up to that bait stick. And when they think they're getting a meal because they're drawn and enticed to the bait, all of a sudden they're snagged. And, you know, we've seen the movies where they're all, you know, upside down by the leg or in the sack or whatever. It's a snare. That is a snare. And again, just like falling is sudden, so a snare is sudden. You think, you know, well, I'm going to just like Demas wanted to do, just look. You don't have to dig. Just come and talk to me about it. You don't have to dig. And pretty soon they just go to look or talk and pretty soon they're digging. They have left the path. They're no longer progressing towards heaven. They have stopped, turned the wrong way and are going in the wrong direction, pursuing money as their first priority. Have you ever had somebody approach you with a get-rich-quick scheme, multi-level whatever? I mean, I have had so many people, you know, I don't know if it's, I don't know what it is, but maybe it's because, you know, I'm a pastor, I know a lot of people, so they think I can sell their product. People come up and, you know, Jack, I'll tell you what you can do. You work this deal for a little bit, you will make so much money, and all you'll have to do is this much, and pretty soon you'll be so rich that you can tell us to the church, you don't have to support me anymore, and you can just, you know, just give all your money to the church. Well, why don't you become rich, and you give all your money to the church? Listen to what Proverbs 28.20 says, A faithful man will abound with blessings, but he who makes haste to be rich will not go unpunished. That's what God's Word says. We read in Matthew, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Not seek the world and the world's riches and then when you gain a lot of money, you can seek heaven. Those who do that wander so far off the path, they rarely come back. Third, not only do they fall into temptation, not only fall into the snare, but they also fall into many foolish desires. The word desire is a strong longing, a craving after something. It's epipithumia. It's often translated lusts. Many foolish lusts, sinful things, and they're foolish Once you become greedy and once you become covetous, it just takes you down a path. I mean, think of all the things in our society which happen because of the greed of lust of money. 
you know, bank robberies and, you know, because of drug deals and people are after money and they're trying to steal things and executives committing fraud and Enron and all that stuff. It's all about money and getting money and people do everything just for money. Money is the channel to get what they want and so they just commit all sorts of things. Those are the foolish desires he's talking about. Fourth, those who want to get rich also fall into many harmful desires. Not only are they foolish desires, they're harmful desires. In other words, they inflict pain upon your own self. They harm your own person. Those foolish, harmful desires. They inflict you with the consequences of your own greed and covetousness. I've seen it happen a long time. There was a man I knew who was pretty wealthy. And his son-in-law said, Hey, we've got a deal. I've got a deal. You need to invest in this. We're going to make a killing. And his greed, and he was older. He was in his 60s pulled all of his money out and stuck it in this deal and lost it all because he wanted to make more and he already had an abundance. And so often, we can't find the strength to just say, Lord... I know I don't have what the other guy has, but that's fine. You know, I've got a wife that loves me. I've got kids or I've got a, a job and I'm not starving. I'm not sick. You know, we, we're always looking at the, the glasses half empty rather than half full and begin to complain and murmur like the people in Egypt. And it's bad. It's wicked. It's wrong. It's sin. I mean, sometimes I get around people and I think, man, are you Christians? It's constant complaint about, well, I wish this was... Murmuring, says Thomas Watson in his classic work, The Art of Divine Contentment, is no better than mutiny in the heart. It is a rising up against God. And when the sea is rough and unquiet, it casts forth nothing but foam. And when the heart is discontented, it casts forth the foam of anger and patience and sometimes little better than blasphemy. Murmuring is nothing else than the scum which boils off a discontented heart." End quote. And that is true. Watson goes on to say, grumbling is the devil's music. Fifth, as a consequence, Paul says, those who want to get rich not only become filled with many foolish and harmful desires, but these desires, he says, notice what the text says, plunge men into ruin. This is the picture, a ship with a hole in it sinking quickly and people drowning. That's what it's used, how it's used. Like the Titanic, which hits the iceberg and that ship sank so fast people could hardly get off of it. And many plunged to ruin. And he says, you start pursuing money and making that your goal. Ruin is at hand. Sixth, Lustful desires for money not only produce foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin, but they also plunge men into destruction. 
And this is an extremely strong word. This is the word that Paul used in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, when he's speaking of the day of the Lord and the coming of Christ and what will happen when he judges at his coming. Paul said, Christ will come dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal, here's the word, destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Paul is saying, listen, if you make riches and the pursuit of riches the goal of your life, you will thrust yourself into hell. That's what he says. You'll be like Achan, who for a wedge of gold sank himself into hell. Even though God says, everything's under the ban, I don't want you to take anything, he just had to have that gold. And he took it and hid it in his tent, and it cost him and his entire family death. Destruction is a very strong word. Now, so far, you would think that we would have it down, this whole idea about contentment. Paul has said, if you long to get rich... You will fall into temptation, fall into a snare. You will fall into many foolish desires. You will fall into many harmful desires. You will plunge yourself into ruin. You will plunge yourself into eternal destruction. Now that, to me, is enough to communicate exactly what God wants us to know, and that is don't make riches your pursuit Don't be discontent with what you have so that you find contentment only in having more rather than what God has already given you. And I'm not saying you can't want a job with better pay. I'm not saying that you can't have lots of things. That's not what the text is saying. The text is saying that whatever you have right now, are you fine with that? You can go for that better job and interview for that whatever. That's fine. And if you get it, great. But are you fine right now with what he's given you? Can you, if you don't get that job, accept that without grumbling and complaining? That is what he's trying to teach here. And then in verse 10, Paul explains the the major evil, which is hiding in the hearts of those who desire to get rich. And he says, for the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. Paul is describing the heart's sin of the person who wants to get rich. They love money. It's a compound of two Greek words. The Greek word philos, the word we get brotherly love from, and argos, the word we get silver from or money in the Greek, and it's love, money love. Those who have money love, that is the root of all sorts of evil. If you have the King James that says the root of all evil, it's not. But it's the root of a lot of them. Just like you look at a tree and you see all of its branches and all of its leaves sticking above the ground, well, you know that those leaves aren't dry or aren't green because of what's above the ground. It's because of what's under the ground. Those roots are sucking up moisture. Otherwise, that tree would dry up. They are taking moisture out of the ground. The root is what's feeding everything above the ground. And here he says that the love of money is the root of all of these evils he has just explained. 
When you see somebody coveting and you see somebody greedy and you see somebody with harmful and foolish desires, when you see somebody forsaking the things of the Lord and, and running after the things of the world, you know that the root of that is the love of money. It's covetous, it's avarice, it's greed, it's the passion to gain wealth. And notice Paul says that the love of money is this major root. And Paul says the consequence is the seventh thing, and some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith. Like Mr. Baez, they've just wandered away. And then he ends it with this very graphic phrase, and they have pierced themselves with many griefs. Just like Saul, when he was injured in battle, he fell on his own spear to kill himself. That's the picture he's giving here. You start pursuing money, you make money your life's goal. You have time to work, but not serve in the church. You have time to read the stock reports, but not your Bible. You have time to think of strategies so you can invest your money, but not time to pray. When that happens to you, you are wandering away further and further from the truth, and you are impaling yourself on your own greed. That's what he's saying here. Does wanting to get rich and the love of money hold a major place in your heart? If, you, if it does, you need to just repent of that and confess it to the Lord. You need to make priority changes. Get somebody to hold you accountable. In closing, I just want to remind you of a verse that we all know, but not very many of us know the context of it. It's Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. We like to use that verse, you know, while I'm moving today, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Or, you know, I'm mowing my lawn, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Or, I'm dealing with my mother-in-law, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, or whatever. But you know what the context of that is? Let me remind you. In verse 11, Paul says, I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means. I know how to live in prosperity and in every circumstance. I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having an abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You want to be content? You must go to Christ and he will strengthen you so you can be content. Remember these four things. Remember you deserve Worse than you're getting, that will help you be content. Secondly, remember God has given you whatever circumstance you are in. Third, remember that whatever circumstance you are in, God's grace is always sufficient. And fourth, be content because that's God's will for you. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you. For this text, and even though it's painful, and even though it's convicting, and even though as we look at it we think, oh boy, I wish I could be that way. We know your grace is sufficient, and we know that you have not called us to do anything that you have not given us the grace to do. Father, I pray that each one of us would examine our own hearts in this area, and as we leave here today, we would commit to making you our sole provision, that we would commit to being content with whatever you bring our way, even if it just being basic food and clothing. Father, that we would remember that when we enter into the world, we have nothing, and when we leave, we have nothing. 
And this life does not consist of things, but life consists in knowing Jesus Christ as our personal Lord and Savior. Father, we thank you for giving us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ and eternal life, which is far riches than can be even imagined. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.